Hey there, it's Kristen Crockett, and you are listening to The Plastic Couch, a podcast to help you find clarity and confidence in your life. Most of us remember someone from back in the day with a couch they kept covered with plastic. It was meant to protect and preserve the couch for tomorrow, but the plastic was hot and uncomfortable, and it kept everyone from enjoying it. So what does the plastic represent for you in your life? Is it perfection, fear, or something else? And what are you preventing yourself from enjoying, or better yet, from being? I'm your host, Kristen Crockett, and I'm here to help you with the tools to get clarity on your path to you and to help you see what's on the other side of the plastic. So welcome to this episode of the Plastic Couch Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen, and today we are talking to Rachel Lockett, who is the founder of Lockett Coaching. Rachel is an executive coach. She's a facilitator. She focuses her work on helping co-founders, so entrepreneurs who are building businesses and helping them build a healthy relationship, an intentional culture, and ultimately more successful businesses. So as I always say, everything in life goes back to our childhood, and you're going to hear Rachel's story about how growing up with two psychologists as parents, but as you hear Rachel talk about it, it wasn't the best relationship between her parents. So that foundation is what led her to find her passion. So we're going to connect the dots for you, and let's get into this episode of the Plastic Couch Podcast with Rachel Lockett. Rachel, it is so good to have you here on the Plastic Couch Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So Rachel, tell us what inspired you to work with co-founders in your work? Yeah, well, I have always had a passion for helping bridge two people who care about each other, but are frustrated with one another. And that started all the way back in childhood, growing up with two parents who were both therapists. And, you know, despite people thinking therapists have it all figured out, they're actually the most complicated people in the world because they (laughs) needed to find themselves and figure out what was so complicated, which is why they went into the profession. And I was constantly picking up cues between my parents of, you know, how are they relating to one another? Who's frustrated with who? And I was kind of playing the role as a kid of pulling the pieces together and trying to create harmony. And so I think from a very early stage, I cared about relationship dynamics and I got into social, you know, student government. I was always the heart of the soccer team. I was kind of trying to be the person who helps communities come together. And so it's very understandable that, you know, way later I figured out that this is actually what I should be doing for work. I do want to start with your work, but I also want to start with the story of what got you there, you know? And I feel like there are, whenever we start a business or we're in a job, there's always like, the reason why we leave jobs is like, there's something in us that is just not being heard or it's not us or, you know, all of that stuff. So yeah, what I will say that what I tell clients is, uh, and I don't tell them the whole story about my parents, obviously, but I do say, Hey, I grew up in a family with two therapist parents. And everything was about navigating what was not being said. Everything was about feelings and understanding nuance. And the reality is that I also grew up between two people who were incredibly resentful of each other. 
and were had great facility with emotional EQ and could explain how they were feeling and could sit with like the full spectrum of human emotion, but still couldn't navigate this very challenging circumstance of raising three children under high pressure, disliking their partner. And so everything I longed for as a kid was harmony. I wanted a healthy family. And I thought one day I'm going to grow up and I'm going to create this healthy, happy family where everyone gets along and everyone can thrive. And I'm going to get along with my husband. And pretty much everything I've done in my professional life has been about creating a thriving culture within a team, within a company, within a sector. And so it's not surprising that now I specialize in co-founder dynamics because that's precisely what I longed to create and fix as a child. So I'm smiling because that is a hundred percent me. That is a hundred percent me. Like, yeah, because I think what happens is that whatever we did not have as a kid, we actually really crave as an adult, but also like those special skills that help that really helped us navigate our culture, our dynamics, like our families, all of that it's what we kind of utilize as an adult as well. You know, yeah. we become really good at that. So yeah. understanding the nuance, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think looking back now that I'm a parent and how complicated it is to work full time and raise children and still have space for you. And just this little aliveness of playing music or going on a mountain bike ride or whatever you enjoy it's complicated. And so I can't even imagine doing that while having a real rupture with my partner. I, I'm so grateful to have an incredibly loyal and supportive partner. And I think back to all the frustrations I had as a child, and I actually have deep empathy for both my parents, for how hard they worked to fit it all in and to make it work. Like my mom, you know, all of a sudden had to take on, you know, crazy hours and was always somewhat stressed. But I think about it now, and I'm so grateful that she was doing that in service of keeping her three children under the same roof in an intact family. And at the time, I didn't understand it. It felt like you're torturing yourself. You're in this terrible hardship circumstance, and you're not opting for freedom and opting for a better life that you could create. And I thought it was all fear-based. But now I actually respect it to some extent because I'm grateful for what I had as a kid. And yeah, and I think with my dad, I look back and I think, okay, at the time I thought you're doing this because you're acting out and you feel stuck and you want to keep us under one roof and you know, you're, you're kind of, you don't know what to do, but now I think that's just not acceptable. Like you have to stand up for what's right. And when you're a parent, you have to be a role model to your kids and you have to think about all the ramifications of your actions and so much yes. parenting or running a business is what you're doing when you're not in front of people. He was amazing in front of me, like sitting on the floor, playing games, taking me to soccer practice, so playful and present. And I'm so grateful for him for that skill set and for that way of being. But all the stuff you do when people are not looking is actually what makes you a leader it's when you are getting up early to make lunch and make sure your kids have your jackets and their lovies in their backpacks. It's when you are working incredibly hard to pay the mortgage. It's all the things you're not seeing. And that's, those are the things my mom did. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting that you say that because when we, even when we talk about 
you know, toxic people or narcissistic people or, you know, things like that. The thing that always comes about that, that, that is very common is showing you one side in front and showing you one side behind, right? If we talk about imposter syndrome, sometimes it's showing one side at work and, and one side in, in, at home. And I think that there's so much in life that is about separating these two. Hmm. And the fact that you now are like, no, you got to... <laughs> You got to merge them together. That you got to be who you are yeah. in front and behind. I love it. Yeah. And at the same time that I say that, I think we all do our best. Really I do. have deep empathy for my father. He had a mother who was really complicated. And I think that due to that complicated mother, he had a life, he has a lifetime of kind of reacting to that and hiding from himself. And I had a father who loved me unconditionally as and was very present. And so I have the gift, even though I'm frustrated with him and I'm upset with him, and I don't approve of the way he behaved with my mother. I still am grateful for who I am because of the way he fathered me. Yeah. And it's interesting. So let's go back to this point of seeing your parents in a different light, especially your mom in a different light, because I can relate to that so much. I feel like we have a lot in common in terms of growing up in a household where it just kind of felt like I was like, my parents were always at war with everything. Right. Mm -hmm. So from their philosophies to one being physical touch and one not, and you know, like, you know, what they thought about this and what they thought about that, it was kind of like, just kind of diametrically opposed all of the time. And so as a kid, it's very confusing. And we have this moment where, you know, I remember both my brothers were sitting at the table and we're eating breakfast and over cereal, we're like, why don't they just get a divorce? You know, like being little kids. And so it's like, now when you look back with those eyes as a grown adult, And you look back at people being married and having kids between, you know, in their twenties to, you know, I think my mom was like 32 when she had me, then having three kids, right? Three kids. Cause it's always different from when you have one to two to three, the dynamics change and just kind of like me too, same thing. Like, I don't understand, like, why is my mom staying in this? And And I think that what happens is that little girl children start to resent the mom, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. We also don't understand what the dad is like, you know, provoking in the mom. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I often wonder like, what would my mom be like with a partner like mine? Yes. It's so secure. It's so supportive. It's so different. And I think if you're prone to anxiety and then you're in an incredibly challenging circumstance, you're not going to be your best. Yeah, it's so true. And so I do get a chance to look at my mom and my dad both differently. I look at the dynamics of seeing them differently, but also I also had to go through like in therapy, I had to go through being so understanding of both of like their you know, childhoods and how they were raised and all of that to then also not really being angry or, you know, like, absolutely. Oh my God. I relate. It has taken me years to not be angry. And I feel so relieved that I can just accept these are two beautiful humans who are flawed and I can set boundaries with my dad 
you know, he wants me to come out to North Carolina. He moved out there, didn't, you know, got married, didn't think much about the impact on me or my family or that he wouldn't be as integrated into their lives. And at first I was so angry about that. It's like, you didn't even think about us. You didn't tell me you were going to get married. You, you did all these decisions without me integrated into your decision-making, which I would never do with my children. But now I realize, hey, this is who you are. I'm not going to change you. And so I can make a choice not to come and bend over backwards and visit you all the time. And I can make a choice of how integrated you are into my life, given your choices. And that's up to me. But I don't have to feel angry about the way you're behaving because I'm not going to change you. I'm grateful for who you are and what you bring to me. And I can set boundaries on how I behave with you. Exactly. And how much time, right? Yeah. So, and I think that the, it was different for me. I, I went from not necessarily, I think I went through different periods in my life where I was angry and then I wasn't. But I think in my adult years, it was more like, I started to be so understanding that I wasn't angry. I wasn't even allowing myself the ability oh. to be mm. angry. Yeah. You know? Mm. And so, you know, when you have a parent that passes away yeah. and you're going through all of those emotions, mm. like it's been over 10 years for my dad. And it's like, you go through these periods of, you know, deep, like, oh, I miss him so much. Then you kind of go through some anger. Yeah. You go through, oh, I miss like it's it's really like a up and down roller coaster of emotions where now I realize, and I say this all the time, I have a very different relationship with my father after he has passed away yeah. than I did when he was here, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's it's complicated, but it also all of these things when you get married and you have kids and you experience a different period in your life, you also experience your parents differently. Absolutely. 100%. That's really interesting. Yep. So, okay, so let's talk how like Tell us now, Rachel, what you do, and we're going to kind of talk about that path that got you to where you are today. So tell us a little bit about your journey, starting off with what you do now. Yeah, absolutely. So, so now I'm a full-time executive coach and consultant, and I specialize in co-founder dynamics. So I work with co-founders, mostly post-series A, post-series B, although I'm doing a leadership development program for seed round co-founders. And, and for people that don't know what that means, break that down a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah, please. absolutely. So um, these are two people who come together with a vision of a problem to solve, a need in the world that they want to address, and they build a product. So most of these folks are in tech. So they build a product, they have an idea, then they start pitching investors. And when they get their first million to three million, that's called a seed round. And so they have located people who really believe in them and believe in their ideas. And they've started to build a small team and they've started to um, find product market fit. Ideally, they're kind of figuring out how to fill that need in the best way through their skill sets and their network. Once they kind of get some grounding in that idea, they start to build a bigger team. They need more money. They raise a series A and they usually have um, a lead funder. So they have found probably a more significant investor, uh, usually a VC firm. Obviously companies can grow in many different ways, but I'm just telling you the standard way. So um, after series A, they're a little bit bigger. Usually, you know, let's say 20 to 50 people, uh, maybe even bigger than that. Uh, they have usually found product market fit or they're getting close. Um, they're growing and they're building out their monetization strategy. 
Um, so it's a little bit more of a sophisticated business. And usually they're refining how they're leading together and going from just leading and managing their tiny team to building a leadership team. So they need to hire head of revenue, you know, a head of finance, and they all of a sudden have to be more sophisticated in how they run a business. And then series B is the next phase after that. So yeah, I decided to focus on co-founder dynamics because over the last 10 years, I've been a part of three quickly scaling co-founder-led tech companies. And I've seen from the inside how much pressure co-founders are under from their investors because they've promised the world and now they have to deliver on that promise from customers because they've built a bunch of initial you know, evangelists and customers, but they haven't really address the full need because they really need to build their product faster and create a full suite of services. And they have tons of pressure from employees who left big jobs to come there and want to feel fulfilled in their career development. And they want to feel well compensated, but the company's not yet equipped to do that. There aren't career tracks. There's no compensation bans. There's, you know, not all the bells and whistles that you get at Facebook and Google and all the big companies that people have come from. And so these co-founders are doing their best, usually for the first time, and they turn to each other. And often the biggest conflict and point of stress in their leadership is one another when really that very person should have their back. And yes. so there aren't a lot of places for them to turn to get support. And I saw that firsthand and I started to work in my coaching practice on the side with a few co-founders and realized these folks all have the same challenges. And it's hard to go to your investor and say, I'm just not getting along with my co-founder. It's not something people share, but it's what they think about when they're going to sleep at night. And it's what creates the most anxiety before they talk about a decision that they know is going to swirl, um, but they actually have so much urgency and they just need to land that decision. And so it's about developing communication tools. It's about aligning on a clear vision. It's about talking what is talking about what's unsaid um, and helping people actually build some relational intelligence um, explicitly with one another. So this is so much like a marriage, <laughs> so much like a marriage. But when you look at it, it's my definition of a marriage is really a partnership, right? So that's the thing. It's like, it's, it's really similar to that. And I love it because it seems like your whole childhood, your whole life, all of your work experience, this just yeah, kind of is perfect for you. It does. You know, I have been uh, roaming in the dark in my career for a long time uh, since college. I was really chasing how I could have the most impact because I grew up as a social justice righteous little kid who was going to save the world. And I had every privilege. I grew up in Palo Alto. I was across the street from Stanford. I thought, why is East Palo Alto and Palo Alto? Why are they so different? This is totally unfair. I spent a lot of time volunteering. I was just going to go to Stanford and save the world. That was my plan. And I just roamed around trying to find a purpose. And I was a teacher in Oakland. I worked at nonprofits. I worked at foundations. I did a lot of interesting, meaningful work. But what I wasn't focused on is what am I truly gifted at? What are my core strengths? And it wasn't until I like meandered into a tech job that was an education tech company. And I worked, looked at really what, who, the, who was successful in that company. And I tried to be a product manager. And I ended up leading the core product team which as I described, tons of pressure. We were 
you know, VC funded first round company, Sequoia backed company. We, uh, I had no business being the product manager for the core product, but I just wanted to do what the successful people were doing and all the men were doing and who was standing up at all hands and giving talks. I was like, I can do that. And so I found myself in this job and I was up late at night stressing about where the buttons should go on this app that I didn't care about. And I was like, how did I end up so lost? I had done everything right, you know, worked incredibly hard at all my jobs. And then here I was stuck in a successful job that I just wasn't good at. And it wasn't until then that I realized, wait a minute, I'm doing this wrong. I need to tap inside to what is my superpower. And let me focus on that because that's what's going to make me happy. And honestly, I read a book by Marcus Buckingham that was about how women don't listen to their strengths and don't take their strengths seriously. And they end up depressed and lost in some successful job that they don't like. And I thought, that's me. I got to change this now. And so that's uh, slowly what led me into my profession today. Yeah. And it's, it's so like in working with women, that is something I see all the time, which is, you know, it's interesting. So I went to an all girls school from second to 12th grade and, you know, after, you know, we graduated, we would do this thing where we would collect notes. What are people up to? What are, what's going on? And one of my best friends went to the brother school. So I was always interacting with them as well. And so when I started, you know, I was actually, we all got together and I was the only woman, you know, that was there. Everybody else was from the brother school. And then that led me to asking, you know, hey, it's notes time. What are are people up to? I noticed a huge difference. And that is that men are so quick to tell you what's going on. They're so quick to, hey, do you know anybody who knows this? You know, like it's so quick to network and talk about their skills and all of that. Whereas I wasn't really getting notes from people. You know, people were not really, they, women were not really, they didn't want to say what they were doing. They didn't want to talk about themselves. And that's a huge thing, which we talk about, like, you know, as you are climbing up the ladder or becoming successful in the workplace, you got to market yourself, right? Mm, You got to network. (laughs) You got to really celebrate your strengths. Absolutely. And in addition to celebrating your strengths and network and putting yourself out there, I think you have to know what you want. Yes. And my lesson from my own experience was when I was just in service, I just want to have an impact. I want to fill a need. I want to be of service. That was great for my bosses. I was such a good employee, always top of my game in that sense. And that felt good because I care about achievement, but it wasn't serving me in the long run at all because it wasn't getting me closer to a clear goal. And I also didn't protect my time the way men do. I got married and I started seeing, hey, wait a minute, my husband takes care of our house and our family first, and then he does his work. And I always take care of work first. And then I try to fit in anything else that I need to do for myself and my family. And that is self-perpetuating in tech and probably many sectors, but you know, there's so much work to do and there is such a clear ladder to climb and you're getting a performance review and everything is about your quote unquote grade and your boss's perception of your work and, you know, what people are going to say about you in calibration and my orientation just fed into that. And so it's such a relief 
to actually take myself out of that and be my own boss and say, Hey, wait a minute. These are my gifts and strengths. I'm going to spend all my time in my strengths. It's energizing and it's liberating. It completely is. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where most people don't even know what their strengths are. And so when you don't know what your strengths are, you can't live in them. Absolutely. Cannot live in them. And I think that that's one of the things I've tried to instill in, you know, any culture I'm working with is how do managers get better at actually looking for strengths, looking for superpowers in their team members and aligning their team's strengths with business needs more thoughtfully. Because people say, oh, this person's just not like this other person in their role. And, you know, they're good at this one thing, but they're really struggling with this. It's like, great, spend all their time in that thing they're great at. Move their yep. role. Create These roles are just fictional. You put together a job description and got someone in seat now who's committed to the business and actually has great gifts at executing on X, but they're not great at Y. Give Y to someone else who's going to nail it and crush it out of the park. And I think we spend so much time wanting people to be well-rounded because we're used to growing up in this, you know, school system where you have to have straight A's, but everyone's lopsided. Well, most people are lopsided and the truly gifted people are highly lopsided. And so give them the right thing that matches their gift and your company is going to be a lot more successful. It's so true. So I'll tell you a a firsthand experience for me with a direct report. So hired with with this job description. And I started realizing like when I was giving her things to do, that it was like, taking her longer and longer and longer to do these big projects. Right. And that's not, that wasn't my experience with her. Like she was like, so on point with everything. And so I started having conversations with her and sometimes people, you have to look at their behavior. You got to look at what, what lights them up because sometimes they're not going to tell you everything, especially as high as high achievers, we're going to try and accomplish it all, right? <laughs> Even when it doesn't feel good, we're going to try and accomplish it all. And so when we really started having the hard conversations and, you know, I restructured everything, I kind of definitely went towards her strengths. And I look back and I was, you know, younger. And it's like, you look back at that job description, you're like, okay, well, I just, I was like, you threw in things that don't even make sense to go together. Like, can you have a person who is completely detail-oriented, but yet is really great at like creating curriculum and designing things? Like, you know, so it's it's really the art of creating a job description in itself is something that's never taught. Yeah. It's never taught. So you're right. We're just throwing things there without actually looking at people's strengths. So then when I place her in her strengths, it's, yeah, you Exactly. And and I think that, you know, we can both teach leaders and managers to manage that way, but we can also teach individuals to advocate for themselves and take time to kind of unearth their strengths and gifts and take them seriously and design opportunities to leverage them. So I deeply believe in curriculum around career development within businesses, not just, hey, let's teach you how to communicate well. No, let's do a designing your life workshop and let's dig into your past and let's think about your dreams. And then let's come up with a career development plan for you in the next year that actually gets you closer to that dream. Because most people don't have an articulated purpose statement. And without knowing where you're going, you're not going to get there. 
But we also need managers to be well equipped to notice people's sparks and strengths, and they have more context on opportunities and can help navigate their team members into those opportunities. And they can also not give up so quickly on someone who's in the wrong role, but really could be successful elsewhere. And so um, I'm really passionate about that because I think it's the way to unlock employee engagement that's so low across the country. I mean, 30% of employees are engaged in the US right now, according to Gallup. And so it's, it's a real crisis. And if it's just such a waste for businesses not to engage employees. It, it completely is. Even looking for me at one particular role where you talk about the Sunday blues, it was like everyday blues except for Friday, right? And that is because I was in the wrong role. I was in the wrong role. And the most productive I was is the two months, like when I was like, okay, I'm, I'm giving notice and you know, this long notice, which I will never do again, but <laughs> I actually was so incredibly happy because I was doing what I wanted to do and I was working in my strengths. And honestly, that is the job that now provided me with all of the skills that I am like the, 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 just the insight of what I do today, because it was now, instead of doing sales, I turned, which, you know, like you're doing sales. I'm a people person. I want the relationships. I want, you know, all of that. Now that, that is sales, yeah. but not the way that I was taught to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. So then when I turned into like, well, I want to create, I want to design curriculum and, and I want to design, you know, like workbooks and, and all of this for people, for sellers. Mm, like yeah. I'm giving you the things that I didn't have. Right. Yeah. So that was the jump start of that. And I think that, had it been a manager who looked at me and said, hey, you're really great at this. Let's actually create this role for you. Things would have been very different. Yeah. So I definitely believe in creating roles for people because you can teach anybody to do anything. But the stuff that lights you up, the stuff that takes you no time to do, the stuff that you can do without like, you know, like you can work through lunch. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's right on. And I will say in my most recent job, I was so grateful for my manager who knew I wanted to run a, my own coaching com company after Stripe. And I was an HR business partner with a team and working in tech. And I will say there's a difference between living in your strengths and doing something you're skilled at. So I was yep. a good people partner, was getting great feedback. I was working really hard, but I was depleted. And after two years, she could see that. And I was raising two babies and I was, you know, my hair is on fire. I was working late every night. And I really did love Stripe because the leaders are incredible. And I believed in the company and the vision. And the CEO was looking for someone to focus on top talent. And he wanted an HR business partner type to think about how do we retain our best talent in tech? Because we have a bunch of competitors trying to poach them. We want to keep them engaged and keep them here. And my boss said, hey, pitch a role, design it. And that lit me up. It was like, whoa, okay, I'm going to stay here at Stripe because I get to pitch a role that plays to my strengths. I'm going to coach all the top talent in tech. I'm going to create programs for them. I'm going to help them understand their gifts and strengths and navigate to working in them more of the time. And this helped Stripe but it also helped me bridge between my role as an HR business partner and currently my role running Locket Coaching. And what a gift that was 
because A, I knew my strengths and I could voice them to her. She had seen validation from all my HRVP feedback and all the executives I had been working with, but also because she had the context and insight to connect me with this opportunity that would keep me engaged for another year, another two years. And I love that. There's there's actually um, an executive that I know that says every job that she has been in, she actually created right? And I think it's one of those things that people don't think about is really taking control and designing your own path forward instead of looking at what is coming to you. So I love that, Rachel. I love it. I love it. Okay. So let's talk. So the plastic couch is all about, you know, letting go of fear, uh, anxiety, like whatever separates you from being who you are. So I'm going to ask you a question to really think about what was your plastic. Mm. What was that plastic for you in terms of what you had to kind of like remove, let go of, release in order to really be who you really are? Wow. That's a deep question. Well, I'm going to start with the plastic that kept me from starting my own business earlier, because I've been talking about running my own coaching company since I was trained as a coach 10 years ago, almost now. And at first it was a very rational kind of trade-off I was making. Hey, I want to understand what executives are going through. And so, yeah, I've had this experience in a startup, but I want to go into Pinterest and I want to actually understand and work with leaders before I go out and coach. So that was reasonable and smart, but it became over time a fear of two things, a fear of, can I really make enough money to support my family? I'm in a good, safe job with good benefits. And, you know, can I, can I navigate that? And two, a fear that I would be lonely. Like, how can I create a community like I have that's just default within a business? And that kind of, that narrative of I'm choosing community and I'm choosing financial stability kind of continued. And I watched many of my friends start their own business. And I thought, well, yeah, they're doing that now, but they're not going to be as successful. So I'm going to stay in to, and you know, I'm going to keep doing this corporate ladder thing. And now that I've left Stripe and I'm working full-time, it's been so much easier to create a community that is really authentic and connected. And it's been easier to make money. So I was really telling myself a narrative that was false for a long time. I still am so grateful for the experiences I got at Pinterest and Stripe. And I do think it's helped me build my business faster, but looking back, I think I could have done this way earlier without those false narratives. So that's a work one. I think in my personal life, I'm not great at setting boundaries and asserting my needs, which leaves me among 99% of women in the world. I really respect the 1% who just say it how it is. Um, I have a husband who, while incredibly supportive and, you know, would acquiesce if I put my foot down, has very strong opinions and is very assertive and very clear about what he wants and how he wants to spend his time. And I have two children who have a lot of needs. And my older daughter is um, a wild child. She is incredibly hilarious and dynamic but she is always asserting a need and doing what she wants to do. And so- You might sound a little bit like how I was when I was a child, but go ahead. Amazing. (laughs) I would have loved to know you as a five-year-old. So (laughs) I 
have had to learn how to navigate those relationships and really remember, hey, I'm still who I am and I'm still lovable and I'm still I'm still going to have this relationship. I'm not going to rupture the love and care that I have with this person just because I'm asserting my need or setting a boundary. And in fact, it's going to strengthen my relationship with these people. And I'm learning that very much with my daughter right now. I'm like working actively on being very clear about boundaries and being very calm and sincere in what is acceptable and what is not. And it's working and it's shocking uh, because I think what I didn't understand is that my head was not aligned with my heart. My head was saying, sit down at the dinner table. We're having dinner right now. But my heart was saying, oh, you've had a long day and I get it. And I empathize with the fact that you want to get up and get that thing. And, you know, I hear you. And that's confusing to a five-year-old. Yeah. 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 So how have you reconciled this head and heart? Has it been with boundaries? Yeah, it's really been, um, I actually spoke with an author, um, Sherry Wong, who wrote a book that I read and she was full, but I convinced her to see me once and it was incredibly (laughs) clarifying and useful. And she basically said, Hey, no, actually what she said, that was so, it was such a wake up call. She said, do you ever, have you ever been a leader? Do you, have you ever worked with any leaders? And I was like, yes. (laughs) She said, you're not being a leader in your family. Mm. You're acquiescing to everyone else and you need to step up into the leadership role. And that was a slap in the face. It was like, oh, me executive coach who works with leaders all day. uh, I'm not being a leader with my five-year-old. Okay, that's embarrassing. And it really shook me and it got me to say, hey, I know how to lead. This is ridiculous. I'm taking ownership over this. And she gave me an analogy, which was, does your daughter ever get in the car and not buckle her seatbelt? Like, no, of course she doesn't. Does she ever run across the street without holding your hand? No, she knows not to do that. Okay, well, then why isn't she sitting at the dinner table to finish her dinner? Or why isn't she going to bed when you tell her to go to bed? You know how to set a boundary. You've been successful in these safety-oriented ones. There's ways to do this in every other part of your life, as long as you're really clear about what's acceptable and what's not. And you're on your spot, which is your head, your heart, and your gut are aligned. And you have two feet on the floor and you know what's okay and what's not okay. And that was a game changer for me. I love it. I love it. I absolutely love that. Yeah. So taking ownership and I, and I do see like a lot of people, you're right. There is this dichotomy of, you know, being a certain way at home and being a certain way in the workforce. Yeah. And I, and I see that too. Like sometimes people make decisions all day long in their job and then they come home and they don't want to make any decisions at all or vice versa. Like they make all the decisions at home, but none in the workplace. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, super interesting and fascinating. So Rachel, I absolutely love that. I love our conversation. All right. Out of all the things that we've talked about today, what is one thing that you wish that I'd asked you about? Well, we talked a lot about partnership, but we didn't talk about my partnership. So on some level, I wish you asked me, what am I learning through my own partnership as I coach people on theirs? Love it. So let's get the answer to that one. What I'm learning is what I read a long time ago in a John Gottman book that is kind of front and center for me right now, which is partnership is about seeing the gifts in the person who is helping you navigate the world. And when you are frustrated with something, 
Like my husband has endless energy and he creates chaos because he's like, let's go skiing. And it's six in the morning and I've just come back from London and he wants to get the kids in the car and go to Tahoe. And sometimes it's exhausting and can be crazy making. But when I see it in context of this gift of him having a vision for what a wonderful family life can be like and executing against that vision and holding it dear and making it happen and getting us out on the slopes and getting us into crazy adventures as a family, I'm so grateful. And so I can appreciate it and I can laugh about it and I can talk to him openly about how crazy he is and how much I appreciate him when we're on the slopes and having the fun times. And so it's couched, all the frustrating pieces are couched in a bigger context of what I have gratitude for, which makes our conversations around challenges so much easier and not fraught with tension. And so that's something that I've really lived through. And that's something I talk to my clients about too. So really understanding the best parts about your partner, the things that make them them, but it it doesn't mean that it doesn't frustrate us sometimes, but understanding and appreciating kind of like the after effects, like the, like the purpose, the, the experiences that that can offer as well. Yeah. And I might phrase it in the opposite way, which is understanding the frustrating, challenging parts of our partner in context of something we love, because it softens that frustration and resentment and irritation when those spike. Like when my husband says, Hey, you should go on a run right now. It's like, why are you telling me what to do in my free time and how to relax? (laughs) But he's doing it because he loves running and he wants to share his joy in outdoor activities with me. And he doesn't understand why I would want to go on a walk and talk with my friend. So I'm, instead of being irritated, I say, thanks, honey, I'm going to go on a walk. I'll see you soon. And I am not frustrated with him being controlling because I'm actually seeing it as him trying to inspire me to enjoy something he loves. Got it. Got it. Love that. Well, Rachel, how can people get in touch with you? Where can they find you on the socials? Yeah. um, Well, they can find me at locketcoaching.com. That's my private coaching practice. They can um, find me at consciouscofounders.com, which is the leadership development program that I'm kicking off in April for co-founders. They can find me on LinkedIn. Love it. Love it. Love it. So Rachel, I want to thank you so much for your discussion, for your words, for bringing all of you to this episode of the Plastic Couch Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. And as always, if this episode has helped you, please make sure that you share it with somebody else so that everybody can hear more from the Plastic Couch Podcast.